Good evening to you all. We are very honored uh, to receive this evening Stephen Kinzer, who is an eminent journalist and author on the Middle East. He has written a number of books, All the Shah's Men, An American Coup and the Roots of Middle East Terror, published in 2004, Overthrow, American Century of Regime Change from Hawaii to Iraq, published in 2006, and now uh, Reset Middle East, with uh, two subtitles, Old Friends in New Alliances, Iraq, uh, sorry, Saudi Arabia, Israel, Turkey, and Iran. Stephen Kinzer is a New York Times, or used to be a New York Times correspondent, and now regularly contributes to The Guardian and writes for the New York Review of Books. He teaches at Boston University. He has lived in Managua, Istanbul, and Berlin. His talk today is entitled Facing Disaster in the Middle East. Do we only have bad options? An intriguing subtitle. He's going to be discussing not just the problems of the Middle East, which is what we usually get, but the idea that there is opportunities in the region as well, which can be grasped by a fresh Western and specifically American approach towards the region. Specifically, um, Stephen argues or will argue for um, a strong relationship between the United States and Turkey and more intriguingly, Iran. So without further ado, please welcome Stephen Kinsey. Thanks so much. Uh, it's wonderful to be here in London, and particularly at this eminent institution. Um, we Americans have essentially taken over for the British as the dominant outside power in the Middle East. Um, unfortunately, I think we, we learned some bad lessons from you. Um, maybe the worst is if you can't change with the times, you're going to lose your position of authority, both politically and morally. Uh, we, we should have learned that from you, but we haven't. Uh, I don't need to go through the uh, uh, deep roots that tie this country to the Middle East, but I did come across some interesting episodes when I was particularly researching the uh, story of Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh of Iran, who of course uh, was engaged in a titanic struggle with the Anglo-Iranian oil company, now BP, back in the early 1950s. Uh, in 1951, the British had the great idea that they would uh, haul Mossadegh before the United Nations Security Council. Uh, and then they would arrange for the Security Council to order him to give back the oil company. Uh, didn't quite work out that way. This was the first time that the leader of a poor country had ever stood on such a stage to explain uh, the, the position of those countries uh, opposing the traditional system by which the world had been ruled. Uh, after this long uh, debate in the Security Council, uh, Mossadegh was leaving the chamber, and at the same time, the British representative, uh, Sir Gladwin Jebb, was also leaving, and uh, photographers kind of nudged them together to get a photo, and uh, they just had a brief exchange. Uh, 
Sir Gladwin said to Mossadegh, uh, God willing, our countries will be friends again. To which Mossadegh replied, we have never had anything against the British. It was the former company that dragged your government needlessly into this dispute. Uh, so that uh, gives you an idea of how complex this relationship has been. Um, one similarity I see between the US position in the Middle East now and the British position uh, during the first half of the 20th century and before um, is that we don't like to take advice. Uh, we really have this sense that we get the Middle East, so we understand the dynamics, what's happening there. Other countries don't get it, including countries in the region itself. They don't get it either. Only we are the ones who understand how the place really works and what needs to be done uh, in order to, uh, to improve and, and stabilize it. Uh, now, for the United States, this was a policy that was fairly effective during the Cold War period. We then, due to the balance of power in the world, had tremendous ability to impose ourselves on other countries, uh, not just in the Middle East, but throughout the world. We had the ability to make countries do things that were in our interest, even if they were against the interest of those countries themselves. Those days are over now. The strategic environment in the Middle East has changed dramatically since the end of the Cold War. Nonetheless, our policies have not changed. We are still stuck in a straitjacket of policies that were designed to confront a security environment that no longer exists. So it's not surprising that those policies are failing. And all you need to do is read the front page of any day's newspapers to see how completely they are failing. I think uh, we can argue about the reasons and whether there were alternatives or other options, but one thing that seems beyond uh, argument is that whatever policies have been followed in the Middle East over uh, recent years and decades have not worked. They have produced the world's most turbulent and volatile region that is a, a pit of hatred and violence and escalating anger. It's a place from which terrifying new threats to the West are emerging. But it is also a place where there are tantalizing new opportunities. In, able to take, in order to be able to take advantage of these opportunities, we have to open our minds and get beyond this straitjacket in which we have been imprisoned. Uh, changing our approach to an entire region of the world is not something the United States does very well. Uh, we really feel we have things figured out. And we don't see the need to spike what we see in every day's newspapers for any dramatic overhaul. Now, one of the immutable patterns of history is the rise and fall of great powers. The ones that are able to survive over many centuries are the ones that adapt, the ones that are able to change as the world changes, whose policies are able to evolve to take advantage of changing circumstances. Uh, if that's true, then uh, prospects for us are not so good. Because up to now, we have found ourselves very unable to change our approach and adapt to the modern uh, strategic environment in the Middle East. Now, I start from the premise that uh, the United States is no longer able to do what I mentioned at the beginning, which is to dictate, to impose our will on other countries. Uh, I believe that in, our, in the new world environment, in order for the United States to maintain a semblance of its moral as well as political authority, not to mention its own domestic 
prosperity, uh, we need to look for partners in other parts of the world. Countries to which we would turn for advice and counsel and uh, with whom we could act in concert. Uh, the Middle East, I think, is a place where the United States should do this. We need to find countries that would make good partners for us and abandon the idea that we alone know what needs to be done in the Middle East and we alone are capable of doing that. So then who would those partners be? Uh, first of all, I think uh, when you're looking for countries that would be strategic partners, you look for countries that would fill two criteria. One is you want countries whose societies look something like your own society. For example, Saudi Arabia does not make a good uh, partner in this, under this criteria. Uh, the second criteria you look for is countries whose long-term strategic goals are similar to your own. In fact, here's another way where, where another area in which Saudi Arabia doesn't really qualify. Uh, Saudi Arabia's long-term strategic interest includes promoting a radical form of Islam, uh, and Saudi Arabia has used hundreds of millions or billions of the dollars that we Americans gave them to establish networks of mosques and religious schools throughout the Islamic world where whole generations of lost boys are taught how to chant the Quran and hate America. So we are financing our own assassins in, in this sense. Um, what countries then would make logical partners for the United States? What countries do have societies that resemble ours and long-term goals that reinforce our own long-term goals? Turkey is the obvious example. That's a pretty easy choice. Turkey has been a NATO ally more than 50 years. Um, Turkey has been at the side of the West. And not only that, Turkey today is playing a very intriguing role in the world. You know, up until uh, less than a decade ago, Turkey essentially had no foreign policy, except for a few countries in the neighborhood, its dealings with Greece and Cyprus. Um, Turkey's global agenda was the NATO agenda. Whatever NATO needed from Turkey, that's what Turkey did. And there were various reasons for this. Ataturk, of course, didn't want to make it seem like he was trying to reestablish the Ottoman Empire. Plus, Turkey was in such a disastrous state when he took over. He had plenty to do at home rather than looking abroad. Uh, but in the last decade, Turkey has taken on a fascinating uh, new ambition. Turkey has become the country that wants to be the, the peacemaker and the dealmaker and the stabilizer. Uh, Turkey is friendly with Iran, but also with the United States, uh, with Russia and with Georgia. Traditionally good relations with Israel, but also Hamas and Hezbollah. So Turkey is able to go places and do things and make deals that the United States and Britain cannot. Um, there are a variety of reasons for this. Part of it is the overhang of Ottoman cultural power. Um, part of it is the tremendous success of Turkey as a, a capitalist democracy. And in addition, I think there's a new factor, which is that uh, for many years, any efforts by Turkey to project influence in the Muslim world were brushed aside with the explanation that Turkey essentially isn't even a Muslim country anymore. Turkey has become infidels. Uh, they're all like Ataturk. They don't believe in religion anymore. Now, Turkey is ruled by a party that has its roots in religious politics, and the president and prime minister have wives who wear headscarves, they pray every day, 
so now Turkey has an even greater uh, moral uh, uh, position. In addition, and I think this is actually kind of an intriguing contradiction, Turkey, in just in the last couple of years, uh, seems to have strayed, at least in a couple of instances, away from strict adherence to American foreign policy, uh, particularly in Turkey's relationship with Iran, and as a result of the Gaza flotilla episode, uh, Turkey's role in, in the world has uh, edged away from being that of strictly the cat's paw of the United States. I actually think this is good for us because it allows Turkey to go into the world and particularly the Islamic world and say, we don't do everything the Americans want. We're promoting the idea of capitalism and the idea of democracy because it's what we think is good. You can see from our policies that we don't automatically do everything America wants. So I actually think in the long run, this helps Turkey project its influence. I think there is an upper limit to how important Turkey can become, uh, and it has to do with Turkey's domestic challenges. Turkey has already made a tremendous strides in its global position, um, and this is great for the West. Um, nonetheless, uh, as long as Turkey is nagged by some domestic problems, its problems in dealing with its minorities, and dealing with its history, and some of its ultra-nationalist impulses, I think there's going to be a, a ceiling, an upper limit on how influential Turkey can be. Nonetheless, the emergence of Turkey as an ambitious regional and extra-regional power is one of the most remarkable uh, geopolitical stories of the last decade. And that's something that is very positive and uh, is something the United States and the West should take greater advantage of. Now, in suggesting that Turkey makes a good partner for the West, uh, I don't think I, I really say much that's too shocking. But uh, when I look around that part of the world and look for other countries that fit these two criteria I mentioned earlier, the other one that I settle on is one that others might not settle on, and that is Iran. Um, Iran is a country that, first of all, has a very vibrant, dynamic, and democratic civil society. This is so different from almost all the countries in the neighborhood. Uh, the radicalism of the rhetoric that comes from Iranian leaders sometimes obscures this fact. Nonetheless, Iran has had a constitution for more than 100 years, uh, living under, under undemocratic rule, uh, has intensified the uh, desire of uh, Iranians to enjoy the freedoms that uh, we enjoy in the West. Uh, and in some ways, I think uh, Iranian society is even more democratic than Turkish society. If you could peel away that uh, layer of religious rule, I, I could imagine easily a scenario in which uh, Iran would surpass Turkey in the level of its, of its democracy. Uh, Iran is also uh, the most, I'm going to say this until I get contradicted, like someone gives me a counterexample, the most pro-American country in the whole world. There is no place in the world where you can stand on a street corner, as I did when I was there last May, and mention to the person next to you, I'm American, and within 15 seconds be surrounded by shrieking people who want to come out and touch you and say, like one woman said to me on this corner in Shiraz, we know they say terrible things about us, but we love America so much. I mean, even in Canada you don't get that. So uh, 
this is, they, it's nice to know we're, we're still idealized somewhere. I, I, I don't want to tell them, don't come and visit, you might get some uh, more moderating influences. But uh, the society there uh, is very open to American influence. In fact, it's just as open as the regime is closed. And I think it goes without saying that the political evolution of Iran is not over yet. Uh, this is still a continuing process. Uh, the, the triumph of American popular culture in Iran is total. Uh, you know it's the fourth largest language for bloggers on, on the internet, even though it's a relatively small country. Uh, Farsi is. Uh, I had a friend who recently stayed at my house uh, told me this story. He, he accompanied Sean Penn, the actor, uh, to Iran on Sean Penn's recent visit, and he said they were uh, walking around the bazaar in Isfahan, going from one stall to another, and they were at one stall looking at some copper uh, working, and uh, as in many of these places, there's an elderly man and then his young grandson working there, and the grandson speaks English. So they had a nice conversation, and after a couple of minutes, they're walking away, and then the, the grandson calls out, excuse me, could you please come back here for a moment? Uh, so they go back to the stall, and, and the kid says, my grandfather has a question he wants to ask you. So they said, okay. And then the grandson and grandfather spoke for a moment in Farsi, and the grandson looks up and says, my grandfather wants to know, what was it like being married to Madonna? <laughs> I didn't even know Sean Penn was married to Madonna. So this is a society that is truly uh, open, uh, vibrant, and interested in the world. Contrast that dramatically to most of the countries in the neighborhood. Uh, now, what about the long-term strategic interests of Iran? Here also, uh, when you leave emotion outside the room, something that Americans have great difficulty doing, and uh, try to look at uh, one's own strategic interest, you find uh, remarkable parallels. First of all, Iran is the bitter enemy of radical Sunni movements like Taliban and Al-Qaeda, the movements that are fomented largely by uh, the uh, contributions of our great ally, Saudi Arabia, and that flourish especially in the homeland of our other great ally in that re nearby region, Pakistan. Uh, so our, our those are countries, Pakistan and Saudi Arabia, that help us fight our enemies, but at the same time they help our enemies fight us. Um, of course those radical movements are led by people who want to kill all Shiites and do that whenever they can. So Iran is a natural ally of the West in its struggle against that form of terrorism. In addition, Iran has huge ability, probably more ability than any other country in the world, including the US, to help stabilize Iraq. Uh, in fact, Iran could be our ticket out of Iraq. Um, if Iran sees it as being in Iran's interest, if Iran is assured by diplomacy that the US is not going to use a stable Iraq as a platform to attack Iran, uh, then Iran could contribute decisively to a resolution of this very daunting problem. In addition, uh, Iran has tremendous ability to influence the course of events in Afghanistan. As many of you know, the entire western region of Afghanistan used to be part of Iran uh, up until Iran lost a war in the 18th century. The language they speak there is the exact same language that is spoken in Iran. Uh, in addition, um, 
Iran has a host of common interests with the US. For example, Iran wants to keep Russian influence out of the Middle East. Uh, that's a stated objective of American policy. Um, the Iranian oil industry is in a state of total collapse. It needs billions, tens of billions of dollars of investment. There's a, American companies are best positioned in the world to do that large infrastructure work. There's even a role for Halliburton here. Uh, we're, we're very good. Since we destroy so much in the world, we've really built up a lot of infrastructure companies that know how to rebuild it. Um, actually, there's no major American strategic goal in the Middle East that can be reached without Iran's cooperation. Whether it is a resolution to the Israel-Palestine problem, whether it's the stabilization and democratization of Iraq, whether it's a nuclear-free Middle East, um, reduction of uh, sectarian tension in Lebanon, evolution in Syria, Iran can have a huge influence in this. Now, why don't, why don't we recognize this? What, what is the problem that prevents us uh, from embracing this new paradigm? Well, I think, first of all, there's a larger problem, which is the one I started out with, which is that we have our policies set. It's very difficult, particularly given the pathologies of American domestic politics, for us to, to change our policies. But in particular, we have a special problem with Iran. This is the most dysfunctional relationship in the whole world. There are no two countries in the world that have been at each other's throats so intensely for so long as the United States and Iran. Each country harbors a deep sense of grievance about the other, feels terribly wounded by the other. Uh, neither country has made much of an effort to see the world as it would look from the other side. Um, from America's point of view, uh, we feel wronged by Iran starting from the hostage crisis. This is something that even though it's 30 years ago, and in fact the anniversary is coming up, I believe, next week, the 30th anniversary at the end of that ordeal, uh, we feel that uh, they hit us and they hurt us in a terrible way, and we've never really been able to hit them back. In, in addition, they have been subverting our policies sometimes very violently, all over the world. So we feel that before we will sit down with them, we need, we need to punish them, we need to hurt them somehow. This is an example of emotion taking over foreign policy making. And emotion is always the number one enemy of sound diplomacy. If we would leave our emotions outside the room, we would be able to recognize the commonalities of our interests. Now, if we could do that, what, what steps should we take? Uh, it's unclear. No, nobody can say whether uh, a new American approach to the current regime in Iran would produce a breakthrough. If it were so easy, it probably would have been done already. Nonetheless, we're not really making an effort. We are not trying to break the deadlock with Iran. Um, our approach, the American approach to Iran now is that Iran must negotiate with us on one issue. That's the issue we care about, the nuclear issue. Uh, we insist that they reach a resolution to this issue that is satisfactory to us, which they would call surrender. Uh, this is unlikely to happen. If you put yourself in their shoes, it doesn't make sense for them to surrender the highest card in their diplomatic hand in exchange for nothing other than a promise that maybe later on we'd be willing to talk about other things. Instead, we should take an approach similar to the approach that we took with China in the 1970s. 
The first document that came out of that uh, process, which I've now gone back to read more intensely as I've been focusing more on Iran, was the Shanghai Communique of 1974. It's a very interesting document. It's very short, and it contains no agreements. That came later. Uh, it has three parts. The first part is written by the American side. Everything we don't like about China and what China does in the world. Second part written by China. Everything we don't like about US policy. And the third part is an agreement by both sides to negotiate on these issues and not to try to resolve them by force. In other words, it's an agenda. That would be the way to break the ice with Iran. Let's start by opening the agenda and saying, we don't insist that you negotiate only on the one issue we care about. We will negotiate on issues that you care about. What are they? In that way, we can look towards the creation of some kind of global agreement, a, 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 the beginnings of a new security architecture for that region in which Iran, receiving something, would be willing to make concessions. The world needs a big security concession from Iran. The world also needs big security concessions from Israel. But countries only make security concessions when they feel safe. Therefore, it should be in the interest of outside powers, whose long-term interest in the Middle East is stability, to do whatever possible to help stabilize that region and make countries there feel safe enough to make concessions. Uh, now, Turkey has a piece of advice for us on how to do this. What Turkey is saying to the US is, we're on your side. We want to help you. But we have some advice for you about Iran. You're handling it the wrong way. You need to be less confrontational. You need to see if you can work out compromise. This is a word that we're still not used to using in our diplomatic discourse. India recently has begun making the same case to the US. India, of course, other they're not actual neighbors of Iran now, but that's just the last 50 years. Iran and India were neighbors for thousands of years. So both Turkey and, and uh, India are making this case to the US. Change your policy toward Iran. It would be good for everybody, including you. We are not listening to that advice now. Uh, I believe that uh, simply making an offer of unconditional negotiations would set off a whole series of debates inside the Iranian regime. That alone would be, I think, a very positive step. Um, and I think it, has the, it holds out the possibility for a breakthrough. But what's most important for us, whether or not it's possible to reach an accord with this regime, um, is that we do nothing toward Iran which will make it impossible for us to reach an accord when circumstances change. And they will change. Let me say that uh, although I, I like the Shanghai communique and the, uh, model, for the beginnings of a new relationship with Iran. I also think a very important component of any American effort, negotiating effort with Iran would have to be the human rights component. It would not be possible for us to make an agreement with simply the Iranian regime on the backs of those very brave people that went out onto the streets in ways that I don't know how many of us would, would do uh, to protest the uh, electoral outcome last year. Now, that's why I like the Helsinki model. The Helsinki Accords gave both camps something that they needed. And they also included a human rights component. Uh, I think this is very important for the United States. We've gotten ourselves into terrible trouble in the Middle East. 
by forging relationships that are just between ruling elites, between governments, between ruling classes. We've done this in other parts of the world as well. This is very damaging because those elites tend to be unpopular with their own countries and then the US begins to share the unpopularity and we become the targets of uh, people in those countries who actually support what we like to think of as Western interests. Uh, so uh, I guess if there ever is a time when uh, the US and Iran finally sits down, uh, sit down for a, a negotiating session that's, that's serious. Uh, the t-shirts I'd like to print up and hand out would say something like, uh, from Shanghai to Helsinki. That would be the, uh, the motto I'd like to see as we begin on a, on a new process. Um, I often thought to myself while I was writing this book, um, what would be a nice quote to encapsulate this approach that you could put on the back of the t-shirts? Um, I'm a great Shakespeare uh, lover, and so uh, I came up with this line from Hamlet, which I do think encapsulates uh, my views about uh, the US and how it needs to change its approach to the Middle East, although that may not be what Shakespeare had in mind when he wrote it. I do not know why yet I live to say this things to do, since I have cause and will and strength and means to do it. So I thought that was a pretty clever quote. But after a while, I began to realize that um, it was culturally inappropriate. Because Shakespeare is not part of the cultural heritage of that region. So I, I was looking for another one that I thought would, would be better. And I, I found one from Rumi, who was actually the perfect, uh, perfect person to take it from since he, he was Persian. He wrote in Persian, but yet he's buried in what's now Turkey. And both countries claim him. And he wrote something even simpler and more concise that I think would be my, my central question, my central appeal to the foreign policymakers in Washington and other Western capitals. Why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? <laughs> Thank you. Okay, I'm going to open the floor to questions. I'd like you to keep the questions brief, please, uh, because we have a lot uh, of you in the audience, and I want to have everyone to have the opportunity to, to ask a question. So, who's going to start? <laughs> yes. It may be an idea to identify yourself as well, please. Thank, uh, thank you for a very interesting uh, lecture. I'm Janos Jemann, student here at uh, LSE. Um, I was wondering, you said um, Turkey and Iran are two potential candidates for, for kind of a rather long, long-term uh, partnership. Uh, what, do you, what do you think, which role could Turkey play in the, uh, um, in, in the long-term process towards Iran? You mentioned that they are already active in the, the nuclear uh, um, negotiations. Whether or not that's really successful, we don't, we don't really know. I don't really know. Um, but still, this, or Turkey wants to play this long-term uh, long strategic partner between, between the West and, and the Middle East uh, in general. Thank you. I was in Istanbul uh, last spring when uh, we woke up in the morning to the news that uh, 
the Prime Minister of Turkey and the President of Brazil had succeeded in reaching some kind of an accord with uh, Iranian leaders on the nuclear issue. Uh, we were thrilled, everybody in Istanbul was thrilled that not only did it seem like this crisis was finally beginning to calm down, but Turkey had played a role in helping to make this happen. So that was great and that euphoria lasted about six hours until people started waking up in Washington and uh, not only did Washington reject that deal, but uh, American leaders actually condemned Turkey for having had the temerity to go out and uh, try to negotiate with, uh, with Iran. Essentially, it was, a, it was a very American attitude, which is, you idiots, you were taken advantage of by those very crafty Iranians, but you're not smart enough to realize that they were using you. Uh, this is uh, sort of a traditional American approach, but it really doesn't go down well in, in much of the rest of the world. Now, the American complaint was that that deal was incomplete, that it left, there were a lot of holes in it, and that was true. But if we were seriously interested in making progress with Iran, we could have grabbed onto it, and we could have said just that. Uh, there are a lot of holes in this agreement, but this is better than we've had so far, so let's build on it. Here are our problems with it. These are the issues we want to pursue. But we didn't do that. We rejected it out of hand. Um, now, uh, I think that uh, Turkey still can play a role uh, it, as a mediator between the United States and Iran, but in order for that to happen, the United States has to want that to happen, and, and so far we're not looking for a mediator. Um, India is another possibility for this, but I, I also look forward to this. So Turkey is, is booming. Turkey is expanding. Turkey is growing economically at a spectacular rate, and its political influence is growing even faster. Um, the mantra of Turkish leaders now is this. It comes out in every speech that Tayyip Erdogan makes. We must get to be one of the 10 biggest economies in the world. They are now number 16. And they will, according to what economists say, make it in some decades. They are going to get there. But everything they're doing is based on this. They know that without a stable neighborhood, they're not going to make it. Turkey is the number one contributor to the economy of uh, Iraq, for example. 80% of the foreign companies working in Iraq are Turkish. Uh, that's true in much of the Middle East. But if, that, if the Middle East explodes again or remains full of tension, that's not good for Turkey. Turkey knows this. And therefore, I would foresee that if Turkey and the United States cannot get a little closer on this issue and Turkey continues to be unsuccessful in persuading Iran, uh, persuading the United States to modify its approach to Iran, I could see a, a Turkey-Iran partnership of a sort emerging. That's a one and a half trillion dollar economy. That's a huge piece of geography. Um, does the United States want to let this happen without being part of it? India could even be a part of this. When we think about new blocks forming in the future, um, the United States should not assume that any block we're not a part of is automatically going to fail or be unsuccessful. So uh, Turkey's a country that uh, if we start to change our minds and decide we want to listen to other countries would be a great first choice. Hello. Uh, my name is Richard Tebbeth. I'm retired and I'm enjoying traveling. And about five years ago, I was in Iran uh, where I would endorse uh, or echo the sort of things you said. Someone came up to me and said, life was much better under the Shah, out of the blue. Um, a year ago, I was in Gaza with Viva Palestina. Um, you haven't mentioned much about Israel. There is a perception that U.S. support for Israel is absolute, uh, including substantial financial backing. You haven't mentioned much about that. Would you care to comment? 
I thought I could get away with just saying there are pathologies in American politics that make it difficult for us to change our approach. But uh, I'll, I'll talk a little more about that. Um, it is true that uh, this is something that separates the U.S. from all of its allies, including Britain. The, the uh, tremendous pull, political and emotional, that Israel has on the body politic. Um, I don't expect that to change uh, dramatically. Uh, but let me make two observations. First of all, if I, the Iranians have never come to me and asked for advice. But if they did, I would tell them this. Uh, you're not going to have any success in trying to get the U.S. to change its policy toward you. You can't do that. And even our friends like Turkey and India can't get us to do that. But your long-term relationship with Israel over the long-term last 60 years, not to mention your thousands of years of relationship between Persians and Jews, uh, makes it quite possible and conceivable for you to approach Israel in a quiet way and see uh, in ways that Arab countries could not do if it wouldn't be possible to, have, to try to calm that relationship. If that relationship could somehow be calm, then I think Israel might be the one country whose advice we would listen to. And uh, that might be a way. I, I think uh, that option is still out there because, uh, this, because of the history of these relationships. If you've been to Iran, you know that Iranians actually have a tremendous admiration for Jews. They've had, I've had heard this many times. They're people like us. They're an ancient civilization. They value culture. They're educated. Um, I don't want to contrast them to anyone else in that neighborhood of the world, but uh, there is a sense of kinship. Here's the other thing that I would say. Um, I believe it is and will always remain a goal of the United States to protect and defend Israel over the long run. And I think this is right. However, Israeli politicians, like politicians in every country, are the product of their own political environment. They have to respond to the clamor of their own electorate. What I think this has done for Israel is to push it in a very self-defeating direction. Israel is repeatedly taking steps in the Middle East, including in Gaza, that undermine the regional stability that is actually Israel's only long-term guarantee of security. Uh, Israel is not going to be able to defend itself indefinitely by military means alone. If you look at the geography, then you factor in the demography of that region, uh, you realize that without, if it is, that Israel alone in a sea of nations that hate it is very insecure. So I look at the U.S.-Israel relationship a bit like I look at the relationship between me and my friend who wants to drive drunk. Uh, he's my friend, but I feel that he's using poor judgment. I want to try to help him steer the car a little more effectively. And in the long run, I think that the only thing that would make a dramatic change in this relationship would be if the United States were preferably in conjunction with other countries, and this is where I really think Europe could play a role, to say to Israel, uh, you have a limited time period in which to make some dramatic changes. Otherwise, we're going to do one of two things. Either we're going to recognize Palestine as a state 
in the uh, borders outside 1967 borders of Israel. Or we are going to recognize Israel as sovereign over that entire region, in which case everybody's going to have a vote and the Jews will automatically become a minority in their own country. Unless you give an ultimatum that allows Israeli leaders, and perhaps also Palestinian leaders, the chance to say, I hate this, but we have to do it because the world is making us do it. I don't see a way that this current relationship is going to produce any breakthrough. Lady in White, please. Um, Sandra Hunt with an interest in the Middle East and having visited most of the countries. But the last speaker has actually essentially asked my question. I, I would just like to add perhaps that certainly at the moment it appears as if uh, things are moving away from the sort of proposals you're making in that Israel does seem to be moving more to the right um, acting against her own civil rights um, groups in there. Um, and America also appears to be moving the Tea Party, etc., further to the right. I would dearly like to believe uh, in your approach. Do you think there is, in the current circumstances, any chance of that materializing? Uh, I would say that for this to materialize, there would have to be a decision at the highest level of the U.S. government. The, the president would have to decide this. This could not be done by, at any lower level. And in American uh, political culture, that would have to be something that a president would do in a second term. Uh, we may have a president who may be reelected for a second term. He has not up to now shown uh, any inclination to make dramatic changes in foreign policy. In fact, I don't think Barack Obama has ever devoted concentrated amounts of thought uh, to questions of global security. He's never had a job where he had to do that up until becoming president. He's devoted a lot of thought to domestic issues like labor and environment and energy, but not to these issues. And the people he has around him are very conventional. They are the straitjacket that imprisons us. But I'll just add one other thing. Of course, Israel is a sovereign country. It makes its own policies. So do we. But I had to roll my eyes the other day when I saw the Israeli Prime Minister appealing to the United States to do Israel the favor of pardoning Jonathan Pollard, this uh, Israeli spy who's in prison in the US. And I thought to myself, they kick the sand in our face every day. They poke their fingers in our eyes, um, whatever adjective or metaphor you want to use. And that, that's, their, that's their choice. But then when they want to come to us and say, by the way, we'd like a favor from you, I had to ask myself, how do you spell chutzpah? <clears throat> okay, yes. Uh, you mentioned the democratic nature of Iran, and yet the impression that we get from here, certainly, is that Ahmadinejad fiddled the election last year. And when you're talking about um, uh, the future for uh, the country, you didn't mention Ahmadinejad at all. And certainly the impression we get in the West He's not the person whom we would think is a reasonable person to negotiate with. He comes out with all this vitriol and hatred and talks about the Zionist entity and so forth. So where you're talking about Iran and the US talking to each other and the US opening itself to Iran, are you suggesting that that would be possible with the current Iranian regime? Or are you saying, well, maybe in a few years' time, it may be possible for the US to find people whom we in the West would consider sufficiently reasonable to negotiate with? I think it may take a few years' time. On the other hand, the clock is ticking in this relationship. Uh, the centrifuges are spinning. If we take that nuclear threat as seriously as we claim to be taking it, 
I believe we should be acting with an appropriate urgency. Now, if we did so, what response would there be on the other side? Uh, I don't think we know that yet. I wouldn't say that President Ahmadinejad uh, holds the power that we associate with the word president. He's not the final decision maker in Iran. In fact, the Iranian political system is uh, quite opaque, and we don't really know how the shifting uh, alliances work. And I think it's changing very dramatically, even as we speak. Um, now, uh, I don't think it's an easy sell for an American president to get up and say, it's time for us to embrace the Israel-hating, Holocaust-denying, demonstrator-shooting, women-stoning president of Iran. Uh, a possibly more productive approach would be to use the uh, argument of national interest. Uh, let's put aside our stereotypes, and in this case, as with most stereotypes, this one is based on a certain amount of truth, and let's ask ourselves, what's good for us? We want stability in the Middle East. I don't think it's right for us, as I said earlier, to make uh, such concessions to uh, the regime that we seem to be betraying people who support our ideals in Iran. Um, and uh, I think even after Ahmadinejad leaves the scene, which I think is going to happen after the next election, that confluence is, is not necessarily going to change. Um, so. I, I hold no brief for him, and he's certainly uh, not the ideal negotiating partner. We don't even know if he would be the negotiating partner. But I would say my two-part answer is, on the one hand, we probably, if we're looking for a real long-term agreement, would have to wait for some evolution in that regime. Maybe not the end of it, but some evolution. But secondly, it's too urgent to wait, and we should at least try. OK, at the back there and then at the front. Yes, you, um, you dismissed the um, U.S.-Saudi uh, relationship because it, the two countries were culturally so different. But surely, in geopolitical terms, they were inextricably linked because uh, the Saudis need the American defense umbrella and the Americans need the Saudi control over the oil price. And, and just looking further, you, you seem to be looking for a Middle East where the uh, is dominated by all the countries that previously have dominated the Arabs with, with Turkey, Iran, Israel and America in charge and you make no mention whatsoever of the Arab states. Uh, very thoughtful question, thank you. Um, first of all, um, you talked about the, the basis for the US-Saudi relationship. Uh, it is true that uh, Saudi Arabia looks very intensely for the U.S. defense umbrella. Nonetheless, if the situation geopolitically were to change in the Middle East, maybe such an intense and expensive umbrella might not be necessary anymore. Um, you also talked about our reliance on Saudi oil. This is true. We get about 11% of our oil from Saudi Arabia. This is not a habit we're going to break anytime soon. If it were to become more difficult for us to obtain Saudi Arabian oil in the future, I wouldn't shed too many tears for that. America really needs a kick in the pants to try to break this oil addiction, and that might be something that we would need. But I want to add one other factor you didn't mention, which I think is increasingly vital, tying the US uh, to Saudi Arabia. And that is the huge amounts of money that Saudi Arabia spends in the US buying weapons. The U.S. and Saudi Arabia have recently signed the largest arms deal in the history of the human race. 
$60 billion worth of American arms are now going to be going to Saudi Arabia. Um, now, the way this works in the U.S. is very clever. These arms manufacturers, the first thing they do is they split up the contract and they give it to different districts of congressmen who are influential in the U.S. Um, I come from Massachusetts. In Massachusetts, we have 100,000 jobs relying on the defense industry. Uh, our Secretary of Defense is trying to kill a highly unnecessary uh, marine landing vehicle. The, the senators and congressmen from Ohio and Indiana are bitterly opposing this. That's where they're going to make this stuff. So the Saudis, through the arms manufacturers from which they buy their armaments, have a, a very tight hold on the American political system. And it would be a very brave American politician who would get up and say, the hundreds of thousands of jobs that are going to be created by this Saudi arms purchase are not worth it. We should forget. We don't want those jobs. That's the situation we're in now. Very, very difficult thing to say. So I think that is part of the tie. Now, your second part of your question had to do with uh, Arabs. What is the role of Arabs in all of this? Um, first of all, uh, you're right that in historically um, uh, Turks and Iranians have been, for various reasons, separate from Arabs. Nonetheless, uh, I do think that uh, Iranians in particular, and to a certain extent Turks, are betting now on forces in the Middle East that are popular. Uh, they are betting on the uh, Shiite parties in Iraq. They are betting on Hamas. They are betting on Hezbollah. These are forces that win elections. We are betting on Pharaoh regime in Egypt and Mahmoud Abbas. These are not popular figures. So although Iran is the target of much anger from uh, Arab leaders, I don't think there's that much resentment of them on the part of ordinary Arabs. And I think, in fact, many of them admire uh, what Iran has been able to do in its support for uh, groups that it uh, backs in the Middle East and that they tremendously admire Turkey now more than they ever did, largely as a result of the, the Gaza episode. So I, although I would see uh, angry reaction from some Arab leaders, I don't think this is necessarily a bad thing. Any kind of change in uh, Middle East geopolitics is going to upset Arab governments. And a peace between Israel and the Palestinians would fundamentally destabilize every Arab government because they'd lose that bloody shirt to wave around. Uh, but these are relationships that are all based on a common interest between elites. I don't believe you would see a generalized uprising or wave of anger in the Arab world if the United States uh, would try to uh, deepen its relationship with Iran and uh, intensify its relationship with Turkey. One question I have, although it borders on a lot of things, America's on its last legs financially. We all know that. It's overextended itself in its war fronts. It can't fight a war. It seems to want to be opening another um, war. What will it take to get people at home to start and think and change. I mean, at the moment, the Clintonistas seem to have taken over the administration. Um, how that happened, I don't know. What games they played, but he won't leave the stage. He seems to be still having Blair on the stage. Blair is that sort of special peace envoy to the Middle East. But what will it change? Because will China have to pull the plug? Um, well, I, I recently heard that our, the only hope to save us would be Oprah Winfrey, since she's so rich, China owes her money. 
we are spending a trillion dollars a year in Afghanistan. Um, we are involved in what uh, the Bush administration called the global war on terror, which has now been rebranded as overseas contingency operations. Um, and it's, it's increasingly clear that this global reach is not financially sustainable. The United States maintains over 700 military bases around the world. We still have 75,000 soldiers in Germany. What are we protecting Germany against? We have 11 carrier groups. No other country has more than one. Uh, how long can this continue? Well, I think what I foresee in the United States is that um, we're going to continue with this fiction that we can have everything we want domestically and everything we want abroad. And then when cuts need to be made, the cuts will all be made domestically in order to maintain the, this, uh, what we call full spectrum dominance. Then, ultimately, I could imagine some kind of a reaction from inside the United States saying, our bridges and roads are falling apart. Our, our people right now, while we're spending a trillion dollars a year in Afghanistan, our students are number 20 in the world in math and science. That can't go on forever. And then, if we come to realize that there has to be some decision making, some triage, something has to go, uh, I could imagine that possibly Americans would begin to rethink this exceptionalist idea that we need to, that the, we, we see the world as a place that needs to be managed, and we're the ones that God has chosen to do the managing. Uh, ultimately, this is not sustainable, and I think that uh, there will come a point at which the right-left divide will break down. This was sustainable during the Cold War, that the right wanted, never saw a war they didn't like, and the left always wanted to cut military expenditures. But if the right truly wants to adopt the policies of prudence and moderation and conservatism, and if these new insurgents on the so-called far right really want to be radical, this is the way for them to be radical, is to challenge this uh, American idea that we're the ones that need to manage the world. If we can challenge that, we'll not only have political benefit to ourselves, but we might be able to avoid the financial disaster to which you refer. There's a question at the back, and then two at the front here. So there was, a, there was a hand. Was it yours? Okay. Hi, uh, my name is John. I'm a postgraduate here at the LSE. Um, okay, so you mentioned the population in Iran is pro-US, and I think there are a lot of indications that show uh, that amongst polling data. Um, but I guess my question is, what, what makes you think that the government or the religious elites in Iran would set aside their own interests? They're part of, I guess, an aspirant regional hegemon, set aside their own interests to work I guess, um, to compromise and work collectively with the U.S. to try to limit political violence. You cited an Iraq as an example. I think that I was kind of reminded when Muqtada al-Sadr recently returned to Iraq that Iran has sort of a long history over the last decade of supporting Shia groups that were trying to destabilize Iraq more than they were probably trying to bring stability outside their local areas within certain regions in, in Iraq. And when we saw the, the Sunni awakening, uh, some of those leaders that try to rein in some of the Sunnis, uh, they were the same ones that the Shia militant groups were targeting uh, just prior to that. So Iran's shown an interest in promoting instability when it's within or in accordance with their interests. What makes you think that they would kind of move away from their interests to work collectively against those that are different? Well, first of all, instability is in the mind of the beholder. Uh, Iran would say they are promoting stability. It's the United States that's promoting instability. You, you can argue it either way. Um, 
But certainly the return of uh, Muqtada al-Sadr is a, yet another indication of one of the major geopolitical developments in that part of the world in the last decade, which is that we Americans gave Iraq to Iran on a platter. Iraq was the principal rival of Iran. As long as Iraq was strong and united, Iran could not rise in power. We are the ones who gave Iran the great prize that Iran could never achieve on its own. So this was our great enemy that we uh, self-defeatingly tremendously empowered. Now, I wouldn't expect Iran to compromise its own interests. What I would like to do is do what diplomats are supposed to do, which is to understand the other person and make the other side realize that what's in our interest could also be in your interest. A stable Iraq is in, certainly in the interest of both sides. But you're touching on what I think is the main reason why the United States cannot, up to now, make some kind of arrangement with Iran that would help stabilize Iraq. And I think that agreement is within reach. But there's one caveat. Any agreement like that carries implicit within it the recognition of Iran as an important regional power. And the United States is not ready to confer that status on Iran. My answer would be, you don't have to confer it on Iran. Iran already has this status. That might be a bad thing. We can argue about that. That's a separate argument. But that's there. Iran is going to be the dominant country in that part of the world for many, many years to come. We should recognize that reality. In order to do so, we would have to compromise. We're asking Iran to make compromises. But we would also have to compromise with Iran. We are not ready to do that yet. And until we are, I don't see any possibility of, of this kind of rapprochement. But if there could be one place to start, um, I think Iraq would be a great one. I can think of many others. Uh, Iran has the world's greatest heroin problem now as a result of imports coming over from Afghanistan. The United States is so eager to, to work on stopping the poppy trade out of Afghanistan. This would be a great area for cooperation. So you don't necessarily have to require uh, each, either country to put aside its interests. What you have to do is require them to put aside their emotions and see the extent to which their long-term interests coincide. And these are state interests that do not change as regimes change. Yes. Um, I'm an ex-student of the LSE, and uh, I uh, am also a reader of The Independent, and I'm very interested in the Middle East. I have also visited Israel. I would like to say, um, you haven't really addressed the issue of Hamas, which is a growing influence now in the Middle East, and the problem of settlements, which is in fact a firing uh, thorn in the flesh most of our terrorists, I think. And I think that this is one of the most urgent questions that you have got to address as Americans. I agree with you that the settlement problem in the West Bank is fundamental to this whole conundrum. In fact, one of the either frustrating or intriguing aspects of this terrible complex of problems in the Middle East is that they're all interwoven. In, in one sense, it's frustrating because it makes you think you can't solve one without solving so many others. On the other hand, maybe trying to make a break somewhere can lead then, like dominoes, to making breaks in other places. And I would argue that a U.S.-Iran rapprochement would, would be the beginning. Now, uh, you're absolutely right that not only is the settlement project an obstacle to peace, but it is a principal reason for the radicalization of 
not just Palestinians, but the whole Middle East. In fact, it's remarkable to me to the extent to which Palestinians have resisted even further radicalization uh, under these circumstances. In fact, it is exactly intense frustration over Gaza, specifically, that has led the Turks and Prime Minister Erdogan uh, to their new policy toward Israel. It's not anti-Semitism or anti-Israel feeling. It is an intense antipathy to the settlement project in the West Bank and, and the occupation and uh, encirclement of Gaza. And that's what led to the flotilla episode. And that is what has made the Turks so popular in the Arab world, including in many countries where they haven't been popular in the past. Uh, Hamas uh, is, act is an example of the forces I referred to earlier when I said Turkey can talk to people that we can't talk to yet, there is never going to be a peace accord between the Palestinians and the Israelis to which Hamas is not a party. So they have to be involved at some point. Again, this is a question of facing unpleasant reality, like facing Iranian power in the Middle East. Americans are not good at facing unpleasant realities. We, we are hardwired, and I think this goes with neurological research. We're hardwired to want to see things in patterns that we understand. And when events violate the patterns we have in our minds, we, we try to deny them or, or transform them. Hamas is now in trouble in Gaza from more radical groups that are saying, you're selling us out because you're not bombing Israel every day. Why are you being collaborationist? This is exactly the impulse that led to the emergence of Hamas in the first place. Now if we think Hamas is too radical to deal with, imagine we get to the point where Hamas becomes the new Fatah and you get another group coming out of this. This is inevitably going to happen. And when I say Israel is careening towards self-destruction, and taking steps that in the long run are undermining the regional stability that is its only guarantee of long-term safety, I'm referring above all to its projects in Gaza and the West Bank. It has to do with the pathologies of American politics and the refusal of the United States to separate its own interest, not from the interest of Israel, but from the interest of the group that has now been produced by the current electorate in Israel. And as I, I don't want to repeat what I said earlier, but I do think that as politics in America evolve and as the economic challenges America faces intensify, there is going to be intensifying pressure to reevaluate our role in the world. And ultimately, this is going to have to include uh, confronting the distorted nature of the U.S.-Israel relationship. It won't happen soon enough, but I think it will happen. Yes. Hi, uh, Angus McSorn from Reuters. Uh, looking at the bad options, uh, I wonder what you thought the probability of a military strike against Iran's nuclear facilities would be in the next, say, 12 months, particularly a, a unilateral Israeli action. I don't believe there's a prospect of uh, violent action against Iran, a bombing of uh, Iranian nuclear facilities anytime in the next year or two or probably three. Um, I now see just within the last week that uh, the outgoing head of the Israeli security agency has said that uh, now they estimate uh, the time when Iran is going to get a nuclear weapon is further in the future than they thought. Uh, it has been now two decades since uh, Israel has been asserting that Iran is either two or three years away from having a nuclear weapon. Uh, some of that may have been true, and Israel is undoubtedly behind a lot of the reason why 
Uh, Iran hasn't gotten there yet. Um, I think this should be an, an urgent um, challenge for the U.S. to try to make sure this doesn't happen. I don't want any more countries to be nuclear armed. Um, nonetheless, we are not acting with the urgency that one would expect uh, if we consider this problem to be as uh, imminent as, as we think. Uh, let me just add this. Um, when I was in Israel doing research for my book, Reset, uh, I had the chance to attend a very small strictly off the record, which I'm going to try not to violate, uh, dinner with uh, a very high official of the Israeli government in charge of intelligence. And uh, he gave kind of a tour d'horizon of how uh, Israel sees the world. About half of that was about Iran. And uh, here's the thing he said that really stuck in my mind. He said, all of you, uh, there were only about 20 of us in the room, about half from other countries. He said, you're all reading in your newspapers about how Israel is terrified of Iran getting a nuclear weapon because the first thing they're going to do when they get one is they're going to bomb us and we'll all be dead. I say, that's half right. We are very worried about Iran getting a nuclear weapon, but not for that reason. In fact, none of us in our security establishment really believes that Iran would ever use its nuclear weapon against Israel because this would mean the liquidation from the face of the earth of Iran in the space of minutes, and the Iranians would realize this and would never do that. Now, we are against uh, Iran getting a nuclear weapon for two other reasons. One is we're afraid it's going to set off a nuclear arms race in the Middle East. And then the Turks and the Saudis and uh, the Egyptians will all want to get into this, then we really are in trouble. But secondly, when you have a nuclear weapon, you don't have to use it. Just having it gives you great power to intimidate your neighbors. Nobody would know this better than Israel itself. So uh, I think there is this uh, intensity of fear in Israel. Nonetheless, uh, in the political establishment, there isn't the sense of imminent doom that Israel is happy to allow the outside world uh, to, to believe exists. Uh, in the long run, one of the bad things that's going to happen in the world in the 21st century is there are going to be more nuclear powers. This is bad for everybody. Unfortunately, it's a challenge for all governments in the world to have to learn how to deal with this situation, not to accept it, and I think it should be a fundamental principle of Western diplomacy to try to be sure that Iran does not join this club. Nonetheless, other countries are going to join that. And um, as with global warming, it's not something we're going to be able fully to prevent, so we ought to be devoting some of our efforts to thinking about how do we deal with it when it happens. Okay, there's four more questions, so I'd like you to keep them brief, please. And Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, Leo. No? Okay. At the back, I'm confused. Yes, hello. Um, you've said a lot about why the United States should change um, its policies and why it would be in the interest of the United States to do so. My question is why would it be in the interest of the current Iranian regime to change its policies? This is a regime which is fairly paranoid as concerned about um, how long it will last in Iran and has used anti-Americanism from the start as a pledge of allegiance of sorts. Um, and it's easy if a politician in Iran wanted to have an opening with the U.S., uh, people um, in the political establishment could try and paint him as a traitor, as being working against the Islamic Republic and so on and so forth. I want to know how you can see that can happen in the short term, not just in the long term. Thank you. 
Certainly there are officials in Iran um, who seem to be uh, deeply emotionally attached to the anti-American project. I don't think necessarily Ahmadinejad is one of them, but he may not be the final decision maker. Um, I think that what Iran wants more than anything is what the Soviets wanted from the Helsinki Accord, which is security guarantees. They are very nervous. They are very insecure. Um, we do have something to offer them. Uh, this would also be a way for Iran to outflank some of its enemies and consolidate its role as an important power in the Middle East. Uh, in addition, this is a highly it's an increasingly unpopular regime. This would be a step that could dramatically increase its popularity. And let me say one thing about the, the green movement that emerged after the last election that became very clear to me when I was there in my last visit in May. Uh, this movement is in a bad situation. It has no good options. But the best of the bad options for the green movement would be if the regime could somehow be lured out of its isolation and out of its paranoia. The US has something to offer Iran. And if Iran can get over its emotions, we should be able to do that too. There was a question here in the front. Am I wrong? Yes. So the, the man in the purple there, please, in the middle. And then Simon. Uh, hi. I was just wondering, just my question was similar to the one just asked, but uh, you, men you mentioned the anti-Western and anti-American rhetoric in the, among Iranian politicians as emotions, but uh, they seem to be using it, they've, they've been using it forever since, the, since 30 years ago to win the limited legitimacy that they have domestically and internationally. So how would you see that, would you agree with that and would you, how would you see that transform? I would agree with it, but I think that the legitimacy this government enjoys internationally and domestically is steadily eroding. Um, and I can't put myself in their mindset, but some people in the Iranian leadership must be thinking, we need to do something to break out of a dangerous slide for us. I think that's what Americans should also be thinking. So I, I don't rule out the possibility that you could get this kind of evolution on both sides. Okay. Yes. Um, I have a question going back to uh, the pathologies of U.S. foreign policy. Um, and it is, how quickly is uh, the United States intelligentsia or the research community uh, in this, uh, going forward in this self-diagnosis, if you want? So um, I think it was in 2006 there was the book by Mersheimer and Walt on the Israel lobby. Um, there are more voices uh, criticizing uh, the straitjacket which you have described, and there's your book. So how do you see the situation in the United States today? What is, what is happening, and where is it happening in think tanks, universities, newspapers? I think there is a slow evolution about views on Israel, and it's driven principally by Gaza and the settlement project. It's not anti-Israel, but I think there's a growing disquiet, incidentally led by American Jews. Uh, over the intensity of this project. Ultimately, this also is fomenting global anti-Semitism, and that is the real long-term danger. Uh, so in the long run, I think when people, including American Jews, are thinking about this, uh, that is contributing to what I think is a uh, changing dynamic in certain segments of the American uh, foreign policy community and the larger chattering class. Uh, I'll tell you this, uh, just to give you one story. I gave a, a talk about this book reset in Washington uh, some weeks ago. 
And a guy came up to me afterward who works in the White House in the national security team. And, and this is what he said to me. One thing you said we probably would all agree with in the White House, and that is that our policy in the Middle East isn't working. We, we need something new. What we haven't figured out is two things. First of all, what would that new policy be? And I've tried to lay out my ideas for that. And secondly, how could we sell that to the American electorate? That's the problem that's next on the agenda. Last question. Uh, Tagi Amirani, Iranian filmmaker. How credible or believable is the notion that the United States is courting and grooming the Shah's son, Reza Pahlavi, as a kind of Ahmad Shalabi figure? And what do we think about the Republicans meeting with MKO in Paris in order to kind of lift the terrorist label? Uh, I find it very disquieting that there are attempts, very unusual in American politics, uh, by uh, one political party to go abroad and meet with groups, particularly in this case, a group that is on the State Department terrorist list, and try to recruit it into our political project. This is exactly what I mean when I say, whatever the US does, we should not do anything now that is going to make it more difficult for us to make an accord with Iran when the time comes. Allying ourselves with a group that fought alongside Saddam Hussein against Iran is not going to win us any friends in Iran. It'll be very hard for us to erode our position in public opinion in Iran, but this would be one way to do it. Um, and uh, as for the future of uh, the uh, Pahlavi air, I really have a hard time envisioning a scenario in which Iranians would welcome a return of the monarchy. The only uh, hope that I think the uh, Pahlavi's harbor, and it is also harbored by their small group of remaining supporters, uh, is that things have gone so badly in Iran since the Pahlavi's left that enough people will have forgotten uh, the sins of the Pahlavis and will think maybe they weren't so bad after all. I don't see this as a very powerful argument. Uh, just to say that we should put someone in power because they weren't as bad as the Mullah regime does not seem very appealing to me. So uh, I, I see that uh, family with the tragedies that it's overcome, that is now facing, not to mention the tragedies that it was responsible for in Iran, uh, having a, a nice long-term future in uh, Arlington, Virginia, where uh, Prince Reza lives, and I, I don't see it extending to Iran anytime soon. Um, I'd like to ask you to join me in thanking Stephen Kinzer very much for a very thoughtful um, speech and then a very thoughtful response to your questions, your very good questions. Um, I also wanted to thank you for being constructive. Um, agree or disagree with you, it doesn't matter. But I think it's rare that when dealing with this region, we find someone who has put thought in these matters in a constructive way. And clearly, this is what you have done. Thank you very much, and thank you all for your questions and your civility. And all right.